Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. Proud affiliate of Redmond Real Salt, the best tasting and most mineral rich salt on the market without the microplastics and other issues of conventional salts. See the show notes for 15% off your order. Sally K. Norton is creating a new awareness about a neglected topic in nutrition, how oxalate in food impacts our health. Sally has a nutrition degree from Cornell University and a master's degree in public health. She's had a decades-long career promoting health, wellness, and holistic healing. Her company, My Food Matters, LLC, provides health and nutrition consultations, speaker services, and tools for recovery from oxalate-related health problems. Sally loves yoga, meditation, and gardening. Sally is helping countless people regain their health and change their lives. Sally K. Norton, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Wonderful. It's great to be with you both. Welcome, Sally. Hi, Nevada. Well, thank you so, so much. We've been so excited for this episode and having you on. Appreciate all the amazing work that you do in the community and just educating and teaching and leading in so many ways. I know that countless people uh, owe you just a return to health and purpose, and we're excited to delve into some of that today. But before we do, why don't you just, uh, for the few listeners that might not know you and your story, just tell us a little bit about your journey. Well, I've been interested in health since I was interested in anything and was always trying to do right by my health and my body ever since I was a little kid and would run home excited about news, even in kindergarten, about what I learned and what we're supposed to do to be healthy. So I was always a really goody two-shoes in the health department, never smoked or messed with pot or did anything bad. I was always a good girl, and that included growing vegetables and loving them and eating them. I grew Swiss chard from the time I was nine. My sister and I used to play with the rhubarb that grew behind the house and feed each other raw rhubarb and pick green beans and eat them and pick green apples and eat them. And we liked fruits and vegetables and we were made them toys. So, you know, uh, apparently all of that was kind of a bad idea (laughs) because I started getting health problems as a 12 year old. I started having back pain and neurological pain as a 12 year old. I was, uh, starting to have, uh, trouble with concentration and mental focus. So I was having both like muscle skeletal issues, inflammation, rheumatic type issues, as well as neurological symptoms already as a 12-year-old. 
And then um, in my early years of early years of starting college, I developed foot pain problems that continued and progressed. They put me on painkillers, ibuprofen, at the, you know, giant amounts of ibuprofen. And that caused me to drop out of Cornell where I was getting my nutrition degree. Because I decided in seventh grade that I needed a nutrition degree so I could help people not be sick. <laughs> like, who wants to be sick? Don't you want to be well? We'll figure it out how. And that's how you figure it out. You learn what to eat and it's going to be great. Well, it wasn't great. I had to drop out of Cornell and get foot surgery. And that I didn't recover well from that. I was still on 3,600 milligrams of ibuprofen after my foot surgery. Um, and the time clock on my leave of absence was running out. So I had to go back to school and uh, continued with occasional need of crutches on painkillers and orthotics, needing to use a bike or a car to get to class, and still growing Swiss chard. So there I am, a college student, growing Swiss chard and broke because I'm now married at this point and uh, eating gobs of Swiss chard and having huge problems and can't figure out why my feet won't get better. I'm swimming almost every day to get blood flow in my feet. They're not getting well. Etc. And so things carry on and I struggle with my health and fatigue and energy and back pain pretty much my whole life and arthritis and inflammation. And I'm this goody two shoes who's was vegetarian for eight years. Then I was vegan for eight years. And of course, the veganism didn't work out so well. And I had to quit that and get back on some meat, which was sort of traumatic and I had to get, I, what I was recognizing is that my system was saying, hey, you shouldn't be eating wheat and bread or the, the beans, especially the soy. So I got off all the beans, got off the wheat and bread. And what did I do? I needed a starch. So I wanted something low allergy because I was really clear that at this point I realized I was now chemically sensitive and I was reacting to a lot of foods and I was sort of hyper reacting allergically to things. And a lot of that arthritis was related to food and fatigue was too. So I chose sweet potatoes as the proper starch to replace all that bread and beans in my vegan diet. And that, so I ended up not feeling better at all. In fact, I started getting fine wrinkles around my eyes and I started getting knots in the back of my shoulders near the shoulder blades, like the rhomboid muscles would have like a knife blade knot, which would make it hard to sleep. And I never connected that with diet. And same with my feet or anything else. And then many years later, I figure out, eh, it is my Swiss chard and sweet potatoes that have done me in. What was your aha moment when you realized that it was the food you were eating? And how did you determine that it was oxalates? It's not a very straight, you know, oh, I woke up and there it is. I, I, I was kind of dense about it as as the world is really kind of stupid about oxalates <laughs> when i first heard about oxalate it was after an attack of vulva pain that's the genital pain that is for women who have that chronically their life is just miserable they can barely sit they can barely drive a car they're certainly not riding their bike uh and you know they don't have a normal life at all and it's debilitating i just got it for a week and it was getting worse each day now i'd had similar issues with like my GYN would always say, Oh, you've got really thin skin and all this stuff. But this time it really got me bad. And I was sort of, I had an outburst in the house and my husband looked up vulva pain online and found that there is such a thing as a vulva pain foundation. 
And I'm like, really? That's so weird. <laughs> You're a mobile payment agent. And they were right down the street from where I used to work. I used to be in North Carolina at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And, and she is just barely an hour west of there. And I was putting together integrated medicine conference and other events and bringing in people who were serving diseases that aren't served well in conventional medicine and bringing in holistic thinking, nutrition and energy and spirituality and you name it. And I never heard of her. And I was like, how come I didn't already know that she was there? And then I'm thinking, but this makes no sense. She's what she's doing is telling people to quit eating high oxalate foods. And she's testing for oxalate in foods because there isn't good lists out there. So she's been collecting money from her members and paying to have foods tested and organizing that data and sharing that with her followers. For now, it's been 26 years. Uh, but back in 2009, I'm the big wig with a master's degree in public health and worked at two universities and write research grants. And I know all the stuff. And she's just a person. Like, she doesn't have advanced degrees. And I didn't understand the science between oxalates and pain. And I didn't understand from her materials that oxalate accumulates in your tissues. And when you stop eating it, your body is still toxic with oxalate and you're full of it. And the body didn't want it there. And the body's pretty quick if it's healthy to try to expel or otherwise eliminate oxalate from tissues. And so she didn't explain that. So I didn't get it. So when I went on and off my sweet potatoes, I couldn't really tell that not eating sweet potatoes made me feel better because it sort of doesn't because the oxalates that you contend with when you stop eating plant toxins, when you stop eating oxalate, come from inside your body. So you're still high in oxalate, whether you're eating it or you stopped eating it. It's just you've kind of turned the revolving door that's spinning, spinning and driving oxalate into your body you turned it the other way and you still have oxalate mobilizing and on the move and causing problems in the body. So that was my first hard lesson as I didn't recognize that I had the oxalate problem when I first learned about it. And But I had now had the awareness, I knew if I ate sweet potatoes or kiwi or celery that I was adding oxalate to my diet. So that with that distinction later on, when I was trying to fix my sleep problem, I had uh, such a bad problem with fatigue, uh, fibroids, bleeding, and back pain that I had to quit my university position as f administrative faculty helping other faculty write research grants and submit and administer public health research. So I couldn't recover. I had to leave my career and my job because I was so unable to function anymore had to have a full frontal, complete hysterectomy and didn't recover from that. And my endocrinologist sent me to the sleep doctor saying, your blood looks beautiful. I don't see anything really obvious wrong. So I want to send you to the sleep doctor. And that test showed that my brain was waking up 29 times every hour. Wow. That is neurological toxicity. <laughs> That is like, okay, that explains why I couldn't even read anymore and why I was on the sofa. I also couldn't exercise. I had no tolerance for exercise. It would wipe me out for days. I was pretty much useless. So this, at least I know, okay, now here's my big priority. I have all these aches and pains. I have all these issues wrong with me and I can't sleep. So, but I've got to hone in on the sleep because until I can get a good night's sleep, I can't live like this. 
And all the research I looked at showed that autotoxicity was really the problem. Like there's some toxin coming from inside you that's poisoning your brain. And they, in the research, they blame dysbiosis, that it's the wrong kind of bacteria or other kinds of pathologic microorganisms growing in the gut. So maybe some type of SIBO. And I had belching, bloating, all these things that looked just like I had SIBO. So I thought, okay, I have a path pathogenic SIBO is killing my brain. So I've got to fix my gut. I've had IBS since 1990. I've never been able to figure out how to fix that. And I know all this stuff. Like I know alternative medicine. I know all the diets. I've done them all. So I'm down to like one little experiment that nobody's done yet. And this is the New Zealand study that says kiwi cures constipation. Well, kiwi has these lovely oxalate crystals that are like double pointed needles. They're like toothpicks. So of course, Toothpicks of glass will help with constipation because your bowels will go, holy cow, get this out of here. And they'll start figuring out a way to get mobile and start contracting. So you'll, 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 you'll help your colon. But it turned out that that experiment, adding in kiwi, was the summer of 2013. remember it really well because it was the first year I went to the Ancestral Health Symposium. And as I was doing this couple of kiwis a day experiment, plus doing a little bit of green juice that had some celery in it, I was finding, now at this point, I'm able to go to hot yoga once to twice a week. And I was finding in this class, which has the identical workout, same temperature, same exercise each time you go, that I was getting worse at the yoga. I was getting stiffer. My range of motion was getting shorter. The pain I was experiencing in class was getting worse. Uh, and I was like, ooh, I, I'm like turning to salt or stone here. Something is not right. And it took me a while. But by the fall, I'm laying in bed one night and thinking about all the pain that had come back on. I had now was back to this sort of muscle aches and pains, muscle knots like fibromyalgia, swelling joints and arthritis like I had in my vegan years, all coming back, plus that stiffness in class, loss of range of motion. I'm laying there and I'm thinking, arthritis, here it is again, my nemesis. I suffered so badly in my 20s with this, you can't believe. And that got me thinking, oh, kiwis, oxalate, and arthritis. Do you mean all that arthritis I had my whole life was my diet? I was like, flabbergasted. I have a degree in nutrition. I'm in holistic health and healing. I had no idea. I knew about oxalates, but I had no idea that my diet was the reason I had all that arthritis. Here, I'm a healthy eater. I, I'm eating for my health. And, and I, I was just like, oh, damn, because here we are. <laughs> I'm trying to fix my sleep, people. I want to sleep so I can function. But now I have to do this stupid oxalate diet because I have a arthritis problem. I just, I treated all these problems as if they were separate. Right. So, you know, I have this long list of all these things. I've been, and the top one was sleep. I didn't want to have to deal with arthritis. I want to deal with sleep. But if, if it's the oxalates causing arthritis, we'll go down to a low oxalate diet. And lo and behold, for the second time, uh, within a few days of really getting off the oxalates, I had a breakout rash. I had had that back in 2009 when I stopped oxalates, but I never connected that with the diet change. I didn't know that that breakout, quote, keto rash <laughs> was the low oxalate rash that I had gotten once in 2009. It was so unusual. I'd never had one in all of my life. So I had a picture of the one from 2009 that was all over my back. 
And this time when I got off the kiwi and the celery, it came on on my face and neck and clavicle area. And it was the same basic rash, just a different spot. And then I was like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. And over time, I'm like, oh, then, now I was catching on that something's going on with oxalate. And in the meantime, I had learned about Susan Owen's work. And she's been working with tens of thousands of families with autistic kids. And they were the ones who correctly identified that when you stop eating high oxalate foods, the body swings around and starts spewing out oxalates and things like these rashes occur and so on and so forth. So, and Susan called this body clearance process, the body trying to get rid of oxalate and expelling it. She calls it oxalate dumping because it's like the tissues unload the oxalate into the bloodstream in waves. So it's like a dump truck dumping it over into the bloodstream. So she named it that. So the online term for this oxalate clearance is now unofficially and colloquially called dumping. That's so interesting. And for our listeners, um, a lot of people are so curious about the mechanism of how oxalates get into our tissue and how they stay there and then um, certain factors for how they're going to mobilize um, for example, in, in the keto rash or when we're injured, such as when we have a disc injury in our spine, uh, the oxalates love to go to areas of injury. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that and, and explain kind of how that happens so our listeners have a context for how oxalate works within the body. Yeah, it's, it's actually a lot to talk about. It's a fairly complex process, but you have to understand that no tissue ends up being spared from oxalate. And the bottom line of this is that oxalate is so interruptive to the function of cells and, and any kind of cell that it interrupts the basic functions of maintenance, repair, and cell communication. And so almost any problem where your cells aren't working well, your mitochondria aren't working well, oxalate could be there in that. So when you eat oxalate, you're actually eating a variety of forms and sizes of oxalate. You can be eating small individual molecules in theory, nanocrystals that are super uber small and invisible and super tiny. Those two forms, the molecules and the nanocrystals, those are the really toxic forms. And that's important to understand and think about because the body also allows something called microcrystals to develop in the body. And you're also eating microcrystals. The plants form oxalate microcrystals as in those toothpick forms that form a whole quiver full in the kiwi and, and other foods. The plants make at least seven or eight shapes and, of chunks and staloids and pointy things. And, and in the body, we see um, this double pyramid shape. So if you can picture two pyramid bottoms glued together where you get this di three-dimensional diamond, and then if you put more space between those two pyramids, you get a long crystal, a staloid. You sometimes, if you buy pretty crystals that reflect light like a prism, sometimes that's sort of what they look like. And so when you're eating oxalate, those bigger crystals, which we call microcrystals, are actually like ground glass and they can start literally eroding your tooth, teeth because it's quite hard like diamonds. But those crystals will also irritate the gut. But generally, you're not going to absorb them. It's the nanocrystals and the ions and the molecules you're going to absorb. It's not usually an ion. It's usually in the salt form. And the salts can be either soluble ones that dissolve and become ionic, and that's 
potassium oxalate and sodium oxalate. And those are just free to do what they want. And they'll grab minerals. They'll grab minerals from your food. They'll cross into the bloodstream quite easily and do from the mouth to the anus all the way through. Oxalates can, these little tiny molecules and nanocrystals can easily transverse membranes. So what happens in the digestive tract is you have a blood system serving the digestive tract and this vascular network forms a single vessel called the hepatic something or other. I forget what it's called. <laughs> but that hepatic circulation is taking everything that gets into your body from your digestive tract and shunting it straight to the liver because the liver is going to protect you from whatever you've absorbed, process all those nutrients and so on and take care of you. And then it's a very short trip from the liver, a couple of inches through the diaphragm up to the heart. And then it goes from the right heart over to the lungs and then back to the heart because the lungs are where we're picking up oxygen. And then that oxygenated blood gets pumped throughout the body. So when you eat oxalate, you're going to expose your gut, your liver, your heart, in your lungs immediately to oxalate. And that wave of oxalate lasts about six hours. So in the meantime, mm, the liver, you think of it as an organ of detox. It can't remove oxalate or reduce it. In fact, the liver's metabolism creates additional oxalate. We make oxalate as part of our normal metabolism. So by sending oxalate through the liver, you don't necessarily reduce the amount in your bloodstream. You probably get more oxalate in your bloodstream. So your vascular tissues are right away being exposed to oxalate in the heart tissue. Now, this is not a great thing if it's a lot of soluble oxalate because it's going to grab calcium and lower the amount of calcium in the blood temporarily, but that upsets the pacemaker and the heart rhythm and the heart and other things that care about it, their electrolyte balance, which is every cell in the body, gets a little squirrely. So there's electromagnetic issues, there's electrolyte issues right from the beginning, and those don't stop. As, as oxalate gets handled and pulled and pulled and put in these different forms in the body, you keep running into those over and over again. So that's the interesting part. It's not just the first calcium. That oxalate can steal calcium from your food or from your bloodstream or other minerals like iron and trans, sort of transform them from a mineral nutrient to a toxin. Now it's calcium oxalate or iron oxalate, and it's a totally different animal, and you can't really undo that mess. So cells have proteins on the outsides, or, you know, in the membranes, and particularly in the extracellular space, those proteins tend to have these carbohydrate molecules, and I like to describe them as like curly hair sticking out from the cell. And that those are called glycoproteins and glycoproteins are important to cell communication. They're very important in regenerating tissues. When you make new cells from a, when you're replacing cells or regenerating damaged cells, those cells have a lot of that sticky carbohydrate on the outside because it uses those carbohydrate molecules like uh, sticky fingers to climb around. It's called cell migration. So a cell is formed in one place, but often needs to be moved into its final place where it does its life's work. And to do that, it uses those glycoproteins. Well, those glycoproteins are very sticky to oxalate. So oxalate gets stuck in the sticky hairs of these glycoproteins on cell membranes. And those are cells that are rejuvenating, regenerating, 
it's, they're also sticky to cells that don't have much machinery anymore because it's a cyacin cell, it's a dying cell, it's an infected cell, it's a cell that's worn out from some other problem, or it's just fragments of cells or the remains of a dead cell. Those proteins are still glycoproteins. They just don't have the machinery around them to, to deal with the oxalate, which requires a glutathione production and antioxidant squelchings because the mitochondria get freaking out and they start producing reactive oxygen species. Oxalate is causing that kind of thing as they go by. It's an electromagnetic interference with cell biochemistry and, and cell electricity. So if the cell can't generate, you know, come up with some electrons and other ways of squelching all this free radical production, that cell either dies or already is dead. And it becomes a place where oxalate sets up a deposit. And those deposits stay until there's a freedom to undo it. And you need the cellular machinery, you need the nutrients, you need the health and the tissue. You also need low blood oxalate levels or some compartment in the body that doesn't have a lot of oxalate. That tells the kidneys can say, hey, I'm good, I'm ready, I'm not covered up in oxalate today. The bloodstream can say, hey, there's not a lot of oxalate here today. And then the other tissues can say, okay, finally, a chance to get rid of this thing that's been stuck here, right? So that's when we turn the revolving door from it's all coming in and getting stuck all over to stopping eating it. The kidneys start healing. The bloodstream calms down. And it takes a while. And then the body gears up and develops these liposomes and machinery where it can take down, dissolve down, break up oxalate crystals and, and dissolve them all the way back down into nanocrystals and ions. So now we're, I've skipped a step that I want to get back to in a minute, but when we're releasing oxalate internally, it's usually because we've had to dissolve them down to those sizes that are the ones that are interacting with the cells and causing all the mayhem. Okay, now you've seen online and on Instagram people showing entire crystals coming out of their eyeballs and their skin and their forehead and their legs. There's the best pictures of all are the Christian carnivores pictures. She's got blisters on her legs when she went on a full carnivore diet, which is a zero oxalate diet. Blisters on her legs, expelling each little blister, expelling a piece of gritty quartz, nice cuboidal. And she even has one of them that's so big it looks like a piece of rock candy. And that's the body not push, not breaking it down to nanocrystals, not breaking it down to ions, but literally pushing the stuff out through the skin. I've had clients pushing it out through their throat, through the nasal mucus, through the saliva mucus, uh, grit coming off their forehead, out of their eyes, eyelids, eyelids stuck together with crystals. It, the body can push gritty stuff, chunky stuff, and whole rock candy bits out. We see it in the feces. We'll see chunks of rice and grit, and we'll hear about burning, like as if you've been eating solid jalapeno peppers. Feel that burning in the rectal and anal area of the body as this stuff comes out. Oxalate feels like burning. So the piece in the middle is when the deposits are getting set up, eventually the body will allow these bigger crystals to form and wrap them up in dead white blood cells and in proteins. So that's taking something that's electromagnetically hot and wrapping it up in 
like vinyl, like you would with the cord around your ears or whatever. Your electrical cords are all covered in a, a casing that provides an electromagnetic insulator. So the body's doing that same thing with these dead white blood cells and proteins, creating a casing around the crystals so they're not nearly as interactive with the localized tissues. It's when the crystals are causing cellular damage that the immune system notices that. And we'll talk about that too, I hope, in a minute. Um, but the bigger crystals can start develop and build up in your body gradually with almost no symptoms. Like no symptoms that you would be any particular about or, or just seem like, you know, that's just my bad knee or my fussy back or something like that. But this disease is fundamentally silent like almost any other disease. I mean, you don't know on day one when your cancer started. You're told you have cancer at stage four. Same with hypertension. There isn't necessarily symptoms around that, but we do have an easy way to measure it, so therefore we pay attention to it. We don't have an easy way to measure the amount of oxalate accumulating in your body, which is one reason we don't pay attention to it, because it is not easy to track nanocrystals and what they're doing to cells. They can form not only crystals, but lipid molecules and just all kinds of other funky stuff. You cannot see nanocrystals. <laughs> you can't. The big ones are um, probably more protective. That's the sign of the body is chunking the bad guys together, like putting them in a reservation and, and walling them off. It's when the when they're small and moving around is when they're causing the most damage. So it could be that oxalate accumulation is partially passive, that it just gets stuck in all the tissues that, that it's encountering, and partially on purpose. Because you don't want a big wave of spinach oxalate and almond butter oxalate and chocolate oxalate to cause a big a, abrupt change in blood chemistry or a big abrupt attack on the heart or on the kidneys. So the vascular tissue may be doing something on purpose to, to temporarily hold back and sequester oxalate until those tissues are ready to keep the, the dose that's flowing around in the tissues at a less pathologic level. The problem is the deal with the body or with you was, okay, I'll hold on to all this extra junk from your silly spinach smoothie with the almond butter in it for now, but you know, tomorrow I'll get rid of it. But then tomorrow you went and ate sweet potatoes and the next day you ate potatoes, then you kept eating chocolate. And then modern life has been so good for the agricultural economy of California, but it's not something that we used to do. And that is eat chocolate and almonds and blueberries and peanuts and potatoes all day long, whole wheat bread. You just, we just didn't eat like that. So the body doesn't know that you can't stop eating oxalate that you, you're, it's thinking it's just temporary, but it ends up being temporary for 40 years. And then you're in big trouble when you finally stop doing oxalate, which a lot of people are doing on an unawarely, suddenly no diet has worked for them. They've tried everything. They've done the vegetarian and the vegan and the paleo and the paleo IT, I, AIP and then the this and the that and this and then that, the gaps. And you can go on and on. FODMOPs, you name it. There's hundreds of diets. but And so they finally get to carnivore like nothing else has worked. And this is a group where obviously some huge percentage of those folks have been overdoing oxalate probably because of their search for health. We, we chose our sweet potatoes because that vegan whole wheat bread was killing us. We got away from the gluten and got into almond flour. 
we got away from the junk food and did green smoothies. You know, we were doing ourselves some good. And in that process of moving all the way to a plant-free diet, we've added even a higher load of oxalate in the process. So this group is creating new science, basically. They're demonstrating with their own bodies, with crystals popping out of all orifices they've got, that something's going on when you take away the oxalate from the diet. Yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I think a lot of our listeners can relate to like your journey of, you know, you, you do these things to, to improve your health and you wind up making yourself so much sicker. Uh, you know, I know I went vegetarian. I tried all kinds of things. I wound up blowing out my colon, a perforated colon, really bad diverticulitis. And then, you know, went to a form of keto where looking back, it was an extremely heavy oxalate diet. Sally, I, I, I joined this company to sell chia seeds and was <laughs> drinking chia seeds every day by the spoonfuls. I ate nothing but almonds, sweet potatoes, spinach, peanuts, tons of turmeric because that was going to help, right, with my inflammation. I mean, it was just oxalate bombs every day. And, and what happened? Kidney stones, gout. I was in so much pain. It was crazy. And so, yeah, I wondered if you might if you might speak to that, especially to the keto world right now that's listening, that has a diet that is very heavy on almond flour and all kinds of things. What are they doing to themselves without realizing it? Yeah, it, it is painful to watch. And I just spoke at a keto conference on Saturday in Ottawa and a Ask them, you know, how many of you are eating on a regular basis? Tea, turmeric, spinach, Swiss chard, almonds, almond butter. You know, these are low-carb foods. They're supposed to be great. This is single-minded focus, as if carbohydrates was the only issue. People want it to be simple. And if you're going to ignore a major poison, now oxalate's been known to be a human poison for 250 years. I, I didn't make this up. This has been around a long time. And it's really quite damning of our public health community, which I'm from. I'm, I have a master's in public health and a degree in nutrition. And the people that have my kind of degrees should know about oxalate. Doctors should know about oxalate, and they don't. So you're not getting this warning from public health messages, you're not getting it from manufacturers, you're not getting it from the produce department, and you're not getting it from your doctor. So you have no idea that the amount of oxalate in almonds is two or three, you know, an ounce of almonds or 30 almonds is going to have at least twice the amount of oxalate that you're, that the research thinks you're getting all day long. So it only takes a small handful of almonds and you're already off to the races. A spinach smoothie made with a little bit of almond butter and a little bit of almond milk is like a whole gram of oxalate. Now, they think you're eating about 150 milligrams. A whole gram is like seven times that. This is, a, this, this is out of the ballpark kind of foods that we're emphasizing. Swiss chard is even worse than spinach. Sweet potatoes, it only takes about an ounce of sweet potatoes to get to 50 milligrams of oxalate. 50 milligrams is the level, once you're past that, you're not on a low oxalate diet anymore. Like a low oxalate diet is not a zero oxalate diet. It's 50 milligrams, 60 maybe. Some people even let you have 75 or less. But if you go down that low, 
suddenly that's a completely different metabolism versus the chia seeds. The kidney stones affect, what, 10% of people and is going up dramatically and it's happening in young children now. It's happening in young athletes. Simone Biles is a great example of that. Kidney stones are becoming more prevalent in women. Our diets are much more high in peanuts, potatoes, nuts and seeds, the chia thing, the health foods, almost all the health foods, there's seeds and all the crackers, all the foods that are supposed to be better for you, you pay more money for, are these high oxalate foods. You're filling yourself up with this stuff that causes not just kidney stones, but osteoporosis, bone damage, tendon damage, vascular damage, aging, maybe uh, changing your genetics enough to, and your mitochondrial function. It's a mitochondrial poison. When you start poisoning your mitochondria, that's the basis of life itself. That's where the beginning of every disease is. You lose your ability to generate energy and to maintain safe, you know, undamaged DNA. You're undoing your basic life force. This is so interesting um, and has truly blown my mind, Sally, uh, since I've discovered you and started learning about oxalates. I can, I have a similar uh, story um, as Chris, when I was doing the paleo diet, losing 50 pounds, trying to fix my PCOS, I was using a shake um, that I won't name publicly, but it was an oxalate bomb. I was drinking this every day as a meal replacement in addition to my sweet potatoes, my spinach, um, having the dark chocolate that was supposed to be good for you. I had containers full of these oxalate bombs in the shake every single day. And I think, you know, in hindsight, could this have been a contributory, contributory um, aspect of my back pain and my disc herniation uh, that ended up happening? Uh, so when I think of this, um, it, it's truly mind-blowing. And once people learn about this, their first reaction is, okay, I need to cut out all of these oxalate foods, um, which could actually not be a good idea um, when you think about it, the way that the oxalates clear the body. And once you finally get over that hump and you're, you're doing carnivore and your health um, problems are still perpetuating, um, could you speak to that, how long it could take oxalate to get out of the body and kind of the process of that so people have a better handle of that? Because I think there's a lot of confusion in the community regarding that. It's really a very important thing where we need to work as a learning unit together because collectively we could be a great um, science experiment and we will have to figure out a way to start collecting data as a, as a community who's using a low plant diet and controlling and being aware of oxalate to see what the best answers are because oxalate ultimately settles down in areas that have a lot of uh, energy needs, a lot of calcium and a lot of activity. So the oxalate settles down into your bones, your joints, your teeth, your jaw, your sinuses it also gets caught in uh, alkaline places like your eyeballs and even the ears and so on. It affects sensory organs as well. And I think that the longer oxalate's been in your body, the more deeply settled it is down into your femur head and your, you know, your big bones and so on. But the, the oxalate you were just eating, if you had just stopped your fancy smoothie shake and your chia, chia seed downing recently and then you stop, I think that recent oxalate is more uh, floaty. It's a little more available to kick out faster. 
And so if if we can move into a lower oxalate diet more gradually, maybe some of that oxalate that you've already got will settle down into a slower metabolic space and come out later and slower. But this does mean that there is a long-term process of the body then bumping back into oxalate deposits as it's doing its normal maintenance and repair and recovery for the next 10 years or more, which is good. I mean, people hear that and they get very discouraged because they recognize that if you've got to dissolve back down to those toxic forms, you're going to create symptoms over and over again. You're going to irritate your immune system over and over again. You're going to break down connective tissue over and over again. You're going to cause the, you know, symptoms and stress on your kidneys and stress in your tissues on and off for years. And then you're going to have days when you just don't feel good, when you just like a giant walking nap. And that's probably a good idea. <laughs> but if it were all to come out at once, if your bones could just push out everything, which they couldn't because they'd probably crumble, they'd probably lose their structural integrity. Now, your skin can go ahead and just push out crystals, right? Because the skin is a rapid turnover tissue. It's designed to be injured at the surface and be able to recover. But your bones are not designed to have holes shot through them and to be full of this occlusion. Basically, if your bones were diamonds, they would be the cheapest diamonds on the market. They'd be so full of mess, oxalate occlusions all over, which makes them weak. It's like having bits of styrofoam all through your bones, and you're going to have to rely on the protein matrix to hold it together and basically scar tissue to hold it together. And eventually you will get into those bones and take out some of that oxalate and recover some of that poaching matrix, especially if you're replacing the minerals that you've been losing all these years. We need to replace potassium and calcium and boron and you name it. But you have to give your body a chance to do all that healing work, which I basically call, you know, like surgery without anesthesia. Your body goes in and has to clip out these little things and there is no anesthetic. It is going to cause some symptoms. And it's going to do it hopefully in a gradual way. If it were to do it all at once, you would literally lose your kidneys and probably lose your life. It would be too much at one time and your system couldn't handle it because the dose is what makes the poison. So the best way to get rid of oxalate is like slow and silently and so slow that you're not sick or limping around or your back's not flaring up all the time. But we don't get a choice in that. The body's going to do what it can do based on what resources it has and it's a lot of things going on that we haven't studied, so we don't know how it works. And I love, that's one of the things that I appreciate about this community. Like you said, it's kind of a giant experiment, and uh, we are learning that a lot of the standard models just don't seem to apply. Like one of the things that I was interested in and wanted to ask you about, like I was a gout sufferer for, you know, my whole life. And, you know, the standard model of worrying about purines and of course <laughs> red meat is the enemy, you know, when you have gout, you know, I, I switched obviously to a carnivore diet and never had a gout symptom again. Yep. Off of the allopurinol, <laughs> off of all the medications. And, you know, some of my research looking into uric acid, like, tell me if I'm, if I'm, if I'm wrong here, but I almost think that uric acid is more of the body's protective response to the inflammation 
that's being caused by, say, the oxalates. It's the totally. oxalate in the tissue that's causing the issue. So it's not the uric acid. It's like we're blaming all of these things, all of these <laughs> natural pathways that the body uses to heal, like cholesterol. It's like we've we've vilified the body's response and we're ignoring the root cause. Totally. The very well said. I, as I like to say, I think Sally Fallon was one who said this too. It's like blaming the ambulance for the accident. You're always going to find the, the ambulance and the first responders at the accident as if it was always them that was the problem. And you're right. Uric acid crystals are pretty much an ambulance that's probably coming in after oxalate and, and helping to kick oxalate out of the joint spaces and leaving behind a more benign trace of uh, what was there before. And there is uh, several authors, one in particular, who said, hey, oxalate gout is just gout. It's all just gout. And you shouldn't be just pointing at, at uric acid as the form of gout or the cause. It's not a cause of gout. When I was told I had gout, I was in my first few years at Cornell and I was a vegan or vegetarian. I wasn't vegan yet. I was vegetarian is when I had my gout. <laughs> no, not when I was eating meat. <laughs> because, of course, it's the oxalate is honestly the the more likely culprit behind gout and arthritis and whether it's rheumatoid because there's this huge uh, stimulation of inflammatory responses by oxalate crystals. Oxalate, because it depolarizes membranes, it causes cells to leak and they leak out all kinds of stuff. And when you're a muscle cell or a bone cell, you leak a lot of potassium. Now, potassium is not supposed to be in extracellular spaces around the cells, and that's how the centuries who run around from the immune system, these sensing molecules and cells, notice increases in potassium levels in the extracellular space, and that is how they know the cells are in trouble. That's the danger signal. It says, hey, somebody's beating up on our cells. Come on, immune system, and it calls in. It runs this whole cascade of reactions called the inflammasome. So you're spilling potassium, you're losing it, you're going to clear it from those extracellular tissues, in comes the immune system, you get inflammation and pain, and we clear out the oxalate too, the oxalate ends up being shunted off somewhere else, and what gets blamed? You know, it's your immune systems at fault, <laughs> not your sweet potatoes. And one of the things that's so interesting to me, and just for our listeners, um, Sally's written this amazing paper. It's one of uh, my favorite scientific papers. It's the lost seasonality and overconsumption of plants risking oxalate toxicity. And we've known about oxalate toxicity since the 1800s. Uh, there's a wonderful reference section for the paper um, of over 100 papers. And I've been going uh, to my medical library and trying to track down all these old case reports just to read about this. And why do you think this information has gotten lost and almost forgotten about in modern medicine? Yeah, it's not only forgotten about in like from the old stuff that was way back in the 1850s and then beyond is the new stuff is also doesn't get attention. You know, they're still yeah. bumping into oxalate. And one of the sad things is that oxalate science that gets funded is all kidney research now. I mean, there's many other pathology reports and case reports that talk about oxalate, like the, the folks at University of Pittsburgh did the report about the children whose kidneys were damaged from almond milk. And so you get case reports, but you don't get serious, you know, multi-million dollar budgets 
to look at oxalate and its effect in the body in quote normal. So if you don't get kidney stones, you're normal. So Nevada, you don't get kidney stones, do you? Um, no, I have not had a kidney stone. So you and I, we can eat our green stuff and our sweet potatoes and our chocolate and we're fine. We don't get kidney stones, but Chris, now he is a, what, whatever a non-normal is a kidney stone former. So in, in research, all we have are the normals and the kidney stone formers, as if that's a useful distinction. Now, all that tells us is that his kidneys don't produce as much citric acid and don't produce as many of these proteins that inhibit crystal growth. So the kidney has all these great things that it does. It generates all these natural inclusions that covers up crystals and the citric acid dissolves crystals and it prevents that, that clumping of the crystals that ends up becoming stone. So he just isn't making enough proteins and citric acid and we can help them giving some potassium citrate and lemon juice and calcium citrate and we can dissolve out his kidney stones no problem that's easy to do but in the research we're in fact in the protocol medicine so you tell me why we don't know about this even in the case of kidney stones we've put in gazillions of dollars for 60 70 years on kidney stone research and we're still pretending we don't know that the basic substrate that makes up the concrete material that a kidney stone is made of is not an important cause of kidney stones. Like the volume of the material, if you reduce the volume of the material, you can't keep making kidney stones. But we pretend we don't know that. And protocol medicine says, Chris, if I'm going to prevent you from ever having kidney stone again, I'm going to make you eat low salt, low protein, boring, bland diet, and not tell you that, oh, and say, oh, well, don't eat the greens if you want. But in the protocol, it doesn't say you need a low oxalate diet. So just quit eating green stuff. Now, that's not going to help you because you're eating chia seeds and chocolate right. Right. and turmeric. Those aren't green. So like the level of ability to even get the basic facts of oxalate into a textbook and get your average practitioner to have like the most rudimentary understanding of oxalate, where it is in foods, and that it is the substrate of a kidney stone is lacking. It's embarrassing. I can't really explain it, but you can speculate that the people who write the protocols and write the textbooks are not beholding to Chris and his kidney stone. They're not worried about him. They've got other priorities in mind when they put together these materials that are used to educate health professionals. And they have some meds that they want to they want to sell me. Magic pills. Because they have pretty good stock portfolios. That's my guess. That right. skews the people who fund their conferences. And now in universities, for the last 50 years, we do something called public-private partnerships. So big institutions and big companies help to fund uh, chairmanships, like they pay for faculty's stuff. They buy new buildings. They buy new lab equipment. They help universities look big and swanky and, and so on. And that is definitely influencing uh what comes out of the universities. So I, I don't mean to get off into something that sounds political, but why don't we know the most fundamental facts about the toxicity of oxalate as a medical community, as a health professionals? Why are we ignorant about this? That we should be outraged. Right. Absolutely. <clears throat> Sally, I wanted to ask you about one of the things, of course, I appreciate about, about your work is just the return to ancestral wisdom ancestral lifestyles. Besides diet, what are some other things that we're missing today? What are some other 
ways that we can return to nature, return to the life that our ancestors lived, ways to help our bodies to stay healthy, to detoxify themselves. Yeah, so the, the probably the most important thing is that we have we have imprisoned ourselves in a wholly synthetic environment from sunrise to sunset to all the way through sleeping time. We are disconnected from the earth, from the sun, from the heat and the cold. We live at 68.9 degrees <laughs> indoors all day, all year long. We need uh, shoes to get to the car. We barely touch the ground. Apparently, this whole electron deficiency is a big deal. I had uh, Jim Oshman come speak at our conference in 2005 about electromagnetics and, and, and how cells operate on electricity and how we really need the electrons that the earth provides us. So we don't go barefoot anymore. This flip-flop is a nice insulator that keeps you from touching that vast pool of electrons known as Mother Earth. So we're not outside, we're not in natural light, we're not breathing natural air, we're not interacting with the all the sensory and kind of indetectable energetic forces that are in the outside world. We Even just visually, we tend to be looking at text and screens all day long. When we're really meant to be standing on a, a high lookout perch, looking around the horizon, looking for signs of upcoming weather, looking for signs of where the herd is going, planning on where we go for proper food and nutrition, how we're going to get through the winter. We do that by surveying a natural landscape and being in tune with the forces of nature so that we can survive and thrive within a natural environment. We don't do that anymore. So we're in our artificial light. We don't touch the ground. We're not on, in different daylight wavelengths. We're not sleeping uh, a full night long. We're, we're not even spending as much time looking at other human faces as we probably need to do. And taking time off, hanging out. <laughs> yes, and I wanted to ask you, Sally, so when... I had the pleasure of meeting you at Keto Fast um, with Dr. Baker. You were coaching him on a yoga pose, and I was watching this, and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, wow, that might help me with my flexibility. Um, I should get into yoga. So I've taken a few classes now, and uh -huh. yoga is so much more than I thought it was, um, especially from the spiritual component in healing your body. Um, in addition to, you know, helping with flexibility, I was just wondering um, if you could speak to what yoga has done for you and how you incorporate uh, that into your lifestyle and reconnecting uh, not only with the earth and with yourself, uh, but he healing your body as well. Yeah, that's a great question uh, because you know, Sean, we love him so much and he is so focused on the pushing of the metal, which is very Western and very masculine and can be quite disconnected from your body. Whereas yoga is almost like self-massage, self-pleasure. And you know what? My battery is getting low, so just FYI. Yoga is a chance to tune in to yourself. And that's through yoga class is how I figured out the oxalate problem. I probably would have been a little more stupid a little longer if it wasn't through checking in. It was a, 
a diagnostic tool going to the same class over and over again, the same 105 degrees, the same 26 postures, the same prattle. The teacher says practically the same thing at every class. The only thing that changed every class was me. And the amount of changes are stunning. Like no single yoga class is the same experience, even though it's the exact same thing. And that's because what you bring to class is completely different every day. The amount of stress you have, the amount of sleep you had, how much oxalates are coming out, how much you poison yourself with oxalate, you know, who there's so many factors. So it's a powerful way to have a relationship with yourself that is benevolent, that is aware, that is learning, that you can start to learn from your own body. And, and it's incredible. And it, it's you're never really a master of yoga and you realize that you and your body really need each other and need to respect each other and work together instead of instead of do this sort of western muscle yourself force yourself to do things that you can't do and it becomes really important when you're recovering from oxalates because you have to be gentle you may have fragile bones like my back is all messed up probably from oxalates i have to be careful about that if you push too hard and do a heavy weight workout you're going to bump into one of those deposits in your muscles and tendons and suddenly you're going to start dumping oxalates out of your tissues again and you're going to feel sick for two weeks and you won't work out anyway. So I love the yoga because not only do you get that self-relationship, but you your balance becomes amazing. Your um, core is amazing. The, the fine coordination of different mind-body connections are get developed it's it's fabulous and there's other ways to do that but i think it should be part of everybody's regimen to do some form of mindfulness exercise some form of meditation and some form of balance and stretching it's really quite restorative yeah absolutely i've i've been doing a little bit of a qigong which is kind of a moving you know meditation and uh just like you said becoming comfortable in your own body, developing those proprioceptors receptors and just being aware of your, you know, who you are in space and moving your body through space. It is like, it's helped even with the workouts and, and everything else. It's just, it makes you stronger. It makes you smarter. It makes you more aware and intuitive, you know, towards your body. So that's super important. Well, this has been fantastic. We can go on forever. I don't think your battery is going to let us though. Unfortunately, I can't believe so, I didn't plug in my computer. Sorry. <laughs> that's no problem. So yeah, before we uh, find out where these guys can reach you and all that, is there any, Anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Anything that you're excited about or project that that you're working on? Well, I'm always excited to hear people's stories. So if you've got crystals popping out of your body, please share that because it's important that we make the case that this is real because people who have this problem feel utterly isolated. No one in their family, none of their doctors know anything about this. So we need to rally around the crippled, the oxalate crippled, and, and help them know that it's not just them, that we've had this too. I think being very public about the fact that you had kidney stones and your back stuff is very probably related to oxalate is helps a tremendous amount of people who feel spiritually wounded by this disease of oxalate toxicity. And because primarily their lovers and family members don't get them, they don't understand what they're going through because nobody's validating it on the outside. So I'm really excited to have people 
come together as a community and keep doing that. And um, there's a conference forming in Europe next summer. So all of you guys who are in Europe, you know, going to get together in Sweden in August next year for carnivore and beyond, I guess. I'm looking forward to that. I am very close to having a publisher who wants to do my book. So I'll be busy getting that done. It'll take a while, but it's very exciting stuff. That's amazing. I was actually going to ask you if you planned on writing a book. So uh, the fact that you have a book coming out, that's amazing. I know uh, women are cheering all over the country once they hear this podcast. Sally Norton has a book coming out, guys. This is amazing. Um, so Sally, can you just let everyone know where uh, they can find you and uh, services that you provide and support that you provide? Um, for people looking to learn more about oxalates or just empower themselves um, in taking back their health? Yes. Well, please check out my website because I've tried to put an awful lot of information up there on the website. And you could spend many days reading there. There is a blog and there's if you want to learn about spices and the oxalate testing, go back and read these old blog posts. And there's some free and very cheap materials under the shop page where you can get that article that you talked about, the last seasonality article. You can just do a web search and download it from the internet. Feel free to share that with people who are remotely showing interest in the topic. And um, it, I'm going to start doing some more like group coaching because we do it locally in person. But I'm going to start doing some online starting with my clients so they can get together and, again, build this community and ongoing sense of support. But if you have something going on that you think is oxalate-related, I believe you. And don't let anyone else tell you that oxalates couldn't be the reason because it could very well be. Awesome. Well, Sally, thank you so, so much. This has been great. Uh, we look forward to having you on again someday and following up and seeing uh, seeing what's going on. I think definitely brought a lot of uh, enlightenment and just hope to a lot of people that are listening and having their aha aha moment as we speak. So thank you so much. Yeah, so thank you so much. Thanks for covering the topic. It means a lot to people in, in trouble. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Sally. Thank you for being a leader, a wonderful teacher, and for everything that you're doing in our community. Same to you guys. Same to you. I'm glad you're out there educating the world. It's fantastic. And it's good. We're changing things. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. All right. You have a, you have okay. a great day. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.